Well, good morning. Good morning, and welcome to Journey. It's good to have all of you out today. My name is Randy, and uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to do that and uh, connect with you a little bit. If you're a regular, it's good to have you with us today, uh, and everybody back from fall break uh, that, that made it safely. So we're glad you're here today. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series today on grace. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed this series a lot. I look forward to it. We plan our sermons out in advance, and for several months, I've been thinking about the fact that uh, sometimes we, um, we know the truth, but we don't always speak the truth with grace. And trying to find that balance, the right balance of the two, is kind of hard for us. And so today we're going to be talking, last week we began the series by talking about what grace is, and we said that grace was totally undeserved but freely given. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, another side of that grace, and, uh, and that is about how we can sometimes cheapen grace. You know, I'll never forget the first time that I saw grace truly shown in, uh, in a relationship. Uh, early in my ministry, I, I started ministry, and I was in a church of less than 100 people in a small town of about 300 people. So if you can imagine living in a town of 300 people where everybody knew everything about everybody, uh, you, you might imagine uh, that there a lot of grace had to be shown. But one of our, one of our men in our church, uh, Jim, I'm going to call him Jim, not his name, but Jim was a deacon in our church, and he was also a very close friend of mine. And um, he, uh, he and our family, we spent a lot of time together with his kids. We didn't have kids at the time. So we spent time with his kids, and we, we just enjoyed each other. And we worked a little bit together. But word began circulating in our small town that Jim was having an affair uh, with a woman. And uh, the, the, obviously in a small town, news travels extremely fast. And uh, Jim's wife worked in the bank, the only bank in town, that was next door to the restaurant where the other woman worked. And when I heard the rumor, I thought, you know, that's impossible, that nobody would be that foolish to do something like that. Um, and uh, so I kind of dismissed it, but it persisted, and time went on. And finally, I talked to Jim about it, and I'm like, Jim, you know, I'm hearing this. And he's like, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm just too busy. But, you know, as time went on, the rumor grew, and literally everyone in town except Jim's wife found out about it, knew about it. And I began to realize that this was true, even though he was a good friend, and even though um, he was a deacon in the church, it, it, was, it was definitely true. And I, I literally knew more about it than I'm sure he knew I knew, but I knew where they met and when they met, and I planned to be there. So one Wednesday night after church, I took a ride to his shop, which was at the end of a bridge. This bridge crossed the river, and uh, the road teed, and there was his shop right there, and I knew they would be there when I got there. And sure enough, when I crested that bridge, on the top of the bridge, I looked over, and there was he and this woman together. And um, everything in me wanted to stop right on the bridge and reverse and go home. Uh, it really did, but it was a one-lane bridge, and there was nowhere to go. And he knew I was coming, and he knew it was all over, and it was up. And I pulled across the bridge, I got out of my truck, and I said the obvious to him, Jim, we have a big problem. And he agreed with me, and, uh, and she agreed as well, and, and it really was over at that point, but we had to figure out what to do. And I told Jim, I said, you know, the only thing that you can do is you can fall on the mercy and the grace of God, of your wife and your family. And, uh, and, uh, and he did that. He was humiliated, as you can imagine, everybody knew, again, in town. He was asked to step down as a deacon, uh, but his wife forgave him. Uh, amazing grace that, that she had been chained and talk, talked about for, for weeks probably. And um, he, uh, he was forgiven by his wife and his children, 
And 35 years later, they're still together. Amazing thing is he stayed in that church. He was forgiven, later restored, later became, I believe, an elder in that church. And his family has flourished. They've done wonderfully well. They're all still in church. And uh, now, according to Facebook, he's the best grandpa ever. But you know what? Only because Jim responded to the grace that was shown to him. But let's look at the other side of that. Let's imagine for a moment that Jim did not respond to grace. Let's, let's imagine that Jim either kept up the affair that led to a divorce in his family, or that Jim begged for forgiveness, but then he didn't stop the affair, or maybe he went out and had another affair. You know, his entire story would be different. His legacy would be different all these years. But Jim was truly repentant. He was forgiven. He was restored. He accepted the grace that was shown to him, and he recovered the trust of his family and his church. And he today lives a, 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 a blessed life. You know, all of that is exactly what we're called to do when we're confronted with sin. In fact, Jesus said it like this, now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You know, we've been talking about grace now for a couple of weeks, which we said was a gift from God, a gift that forgives and restores relationships even in the face of our sin even when we totally do not deserve it, even when it has to be freely given, we can't earn it. And we all sing the song, we say, you know, grace is truly amazing, amazing. And we all have probably experienced that grace. If you're a child of God and you've been forgiven, you know that you had grace that you didn't deserve, that God gave to you. And in spite of your struggles and your challenges that, you know, you've been forgiven, you've been restored, you have a relationship with God. But today we're going to talk about how you can take that amazing grace and how you can ruin it. We're going to talk about how you can take that grace and you can throw it on the floor and you can trample it and you can literally make a mockery out of the amazing grace of God. And so in this series, we called it Getting Grace Right. And so up front, we wanted to talk about what grace really was. But today I want to talk about how you can get grace wrong. There are wrong ways to to look at grace or think of grace and there are right ways to think about grace. And to get grace right, we have to understand that it's not just about grace, that it's also about grace and truth together, that grace and truth have to be intertwined with one another, that there is no tension when all we do is show grace, there's no tension when all that we do is show truth, and either one of those alone do not really show love. In fact, the only real tension that comes, the only way that we can show love to someone is when you take truth and grace and you show them together. Because if you take away truth, you don't have genuine grace. To those to whom Jesus extended grace, he always first affirmed truth in advance. Jesus never condemned anyone, but he also never condoned their sin. In fact, Jesus always recognized their sin. He pointed it out. He denounced it lovingly with grace but then he told him to go and sin no more. You know, we all get that wrong sometimes because sometimes we think that if we're going to show grace to people, that we have to either ignore sin or we have to accept sin and sometimes even defend sin. That becomes the norm of our culture today. In fact, there are a lot of people out there and unfortunately a lot of churches as well in our world who in the name of love and grace are just ignoring sin and ignoring what the Bible has to say about sin. That is not grace. It's not grace. It may feel like grace. It may feel 
loving, but it's not what Jesus taught. It's not how Jesus lived, and it's not how we can live as well. In John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus came full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Jesus knew how to balance truth, but also to show grace in the middle of that, and we have to learn to do that as well. In fact, next week, the message is going to be on how to extend grace, and it's going to be about the story of a woman who was literally caught in adultery, who was about to be stoned by religious people. If you know the story, you knew Jesus came to her rescue and defense, but he told her, now stop sleeping around because that's sin. That's wrong. That's grace and truth put together. Truth is always important because truth, it describes how things really are in God's eyes. God is the ultimate authority of truth. He is the one who sets the boundaries of what's right and what's wrong. We have no right to try to move those boundaries. We have to accept the truth of God. Sin is real. And we have to be truthful about that. But at the same time, we have to balance our truth with grace in order to show love. Truth without grace is judgment, but grace without truth is deception. And neither one of those is truly loving. And that's the hard line that we have to walk today in our world because our world loves grace, but our world doesn't like to talk about truth. The Bible says it like this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You know, I think it's amazing sometimes how messed up that we can get about grace. Jesus taught us that our sin is offensive to God, that our sin has to be forgiven, and that we can find that forgiveness through the grace of God, only through God's grace, freely given, totally undeserved. But obviously some in the Roman church were suggesting that since we've experienced grace, that now our sin was no big deal, that Grace took all the pain out of sin, you know, and and didn't matter anymore. That God didn't care if we just kept on sinning more and more. As long as we sinned and then we asked for forgiveness, it didn't matter what we did. And Paul speaks in the face of that sort of thinking. In fact, it almost was like some thought that sin was a good idea because the more we sin, the more God gets to show grace and the greater God's grace is because we'll sin more like it's no big deal. And like God's got all of our sin, we don't have to worry about it. Paul said, are you crazy? I mean, that's crazy thinking. No, but that's not what it means. It's like saying, now because I'm a Christian, I have the right to sin any way I want, and God's just going to keep forgiving me. That's how we can abuse and cheapen grace. It isn't true at all. No, Paul says, in fact, that we have died with Christ, that we have been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And in fact, he illustrates that in baptism. He said, in our baptism, we have died to ourselves. We've been buried in the waters of baptism. We've been raised in new life. Now we are a new person. We've been set free, literally, from all of that old life that we had. Because of that, now we're no longer a slave to sin, and we have to live in that new life. That through our death to sin, the sacrifice is seen and experienced, And now we're a new creation, not the old person we used to be. To refuse to live in a new life once we have been purchased and set free would be foolish. 
And we would be simply to imply that we don't value what Jesus did for us, that we've taken it for granted, that we don't understand our new life, we don't understand the cost of sin, that instead of choosing to live a pure life, we would choose to sin because we just assume that we're going to be forgiven no matter what we do. And there's a name for that. And the name that some have given is called cheap grace, which is not grace at all. Now, where did that name come from? Well, that's an interesting story in itself. If you've heard that story, you know it was uh, kind of coined by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran minister back in the 1930s and 40s in Germany, during the days of Nazi Germany. He worked with the resistant, underground resistant movement against the Nazis. And Bonhoeffer was um, obviously evaded uh, the, the police or the Nazis for some time, but he was eventually captured and executed at a Nazi concentration camp. Before he did that, however, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he coined this term, cheap grace. And here's some of the thoughts. I won't read a lot of passages, but here's some of the bullet points that he said about cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace without price, grace without cost. Through such grace, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Real grace, however, is costly because it calls us to follow. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of His Son. Amen. Cheap grace is Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ, which is not Christianity at all. So in answer to Paul's question, his hypothetical question, no, we cannot continue to sin in order to increase grace, and no, we cannot continue to live in sin any longer. Because once we've been set free, once we've experienced the true grace of Christ, once we totally understand that we realize we cannot live in our sin any longer, we can't just cheapen the grace of God by pretending that what we do doesn't matter to God. And we have to understand that not only do we have to confront sin in our own lives, but that also sometimes we have to confront sin in the other lives of other believers. And let me tell you, that is difficult. It's very difficult. I've been uh, called upon a few times, or probably several times in my ministry, to have to go do something like talking to Jim. I'm telling you, it's hard when you have to confront somebody that you love and you care about. But you understand that sin has blinded them in such a way that they don't know what they're doing. That Satan's got a hold of their life and they're cheapening the grace and the forgiveness of God. That's a hard thing to do. It's also difficult because even in our own minds, it doesn't seem really loving. Loving seems like we would pat them on the back and say, doesn't matter what you do, God loves you anyway. But that's not real love. We've already seen that love can only be shown in the tension of grace and truth put together. In fact, the Bible tells us and gives us many examples of how that we have to confront sin in our own lives and, and the lives of other people as well. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we see where Paul talks about the need to uh, 
uh, to emphasize truth and sometimes reinforce truth over grace that some may be taken advantage of. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 3. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, your, out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, a yellow yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Wow. I mean, that doesn't sound all that graceful, does it? doesn't sound all that loving, but, but Paul's saying there's a problem there. And we don't know all the situation, what was going on, but seemingly someone in the church, perhaps even a leader in the church, was involved in a sexual sin, seemingly living with his stepmother, and it was a public thing. And this man was unwilling to repent. In fact, he seemed to be flaunting it. He seemed to be defending his sin, maybe even claiming that it was God's will. Have you ever noticed people doing that? That if they're doing something wrong, they sometimes build this whole defense of themselves by saying, this is God's will. God wants us to do this. That's why we can really put up our walls to defend ourselves and excuse ourselves from sin. And Paul says you've got to deal with that. You know, I've noticed that whenever Christians are in sin, they do one of three things. They either repent, they leave the church, or they harden their hearts. And those people who are open to hearing God's word and truth will have broken hearts. Sometime when another person comes and talks to them and confronts them lovingly, they're going to stop the sin, seek forgiveness, seek reconciliation, restitution if possible, kind of like the story of Jim I told earlier. But other people, whenever they're confronted with the truth, they're going to run, run away. Sometime even before somebody talks to them, they're going to begin to back away from the church because they don't want to acknowledge their sin, and they won't repent of their sin. They won't change. And they're going to run from the church. They're going to run from family and friends and responsibility and accountability. And oftentimes in the church, sometimes we don't even know what's going on in their lives. And we might try to go to them and, you know, try to encourage them to come back. But sometimes they, they will persist. And if they persist in their sin, we have to let them go. And that's what Paul's saying is that sometimes you have to let people go. You have to let them go. In fact, there's other times in the Bible where it even says that, that Satan needs to deal with them and work on them. God needs to deal with their heart as well. 
Sometimes we have to let them go. You know, in my experience, this is what oftentimes happens if there's no repentance in someone's heart. If there's a, the Spirit in their heart and they're sinning and they know it, they're going to run away and they're, they're not going to humble themselves and they're going to feel guilty when they come to church. They're going to feel guilty when they're among other Christians. But in this case, it seems that something else happened. Other people are going to harden their hearts and double down on their sin. That seems to be what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, oftentimes people lash out at those who try to show them grace and truth uh, together and who lovingly confront them and try to lead them to repentance. They might even ask the question, well, who are you to judge me? And their hearts turn really cold and they defend and almost become boastful about their choice and demand that their lifestyle be accepted. And this is what Paul's writing about. This is the cheap grace that he's addressing here. And the church in Corinth, in trying to be loving and graceful, had messed up grace. They actually thought that grace was just acceptance of everything, that it was affirmation of everything, that it was continuing on as if nothing was happening here. And seemingly, they were proud of their tolerance of sin. Paul says, you know what's going on, and you are embracing this, and you're acting as if this isn't wrong anymore. And he said, that is how you cheapen grace. And his, his language is pretty strong and firm. In verse 2, he said, you should be mourning, and you should put this person out of your fellowship. In verse 13, he's even more clear, expel the wicked person from among you. Wow, I mean, that doesn't sound like what a church should do, does it, in our culture? That certainly doesn't sound like our view of grace. But then he begins to say, but here's the problem with that. Because if you don't, you trample. You trample the, the love of God. You trample the grace of God. You ignore the truth of God. And you make the church's reputation a joke. But even more than that, it tramples on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's a difficult thing. None of us want to be guilty of that. Paul says, clearly, we're not to judge the unbelieving world. In fact, did you notice what he said? If you stop associating with people who sin, you'll have to leave the world, and you can't do that. We're going to be among people who are in sin all the time. We don't judge the unbelieving world, but we have to be honestly assessing ourselves and one another as Christians. It's our duty to each other. Why? Because I have blind spots, and you have blind spots, and sometimes we just have to come to each other and say, I'm troubled about this. I'm seeing this. I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about you and your walk with the Lord. We have a duty to one another. We have a duty to Christ. And in Galatians chapter 5, it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live with the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What does Paul talk about when he says carry each other's burdens? It means there may be time that I have to come alongside of you and help you pick up a load, or you have to come alongside and help me pick up a load, and we bear each other's struggles because we love each other, because we care about each other. Yeah, at times it's difficult as it is, we have to confront. You know, Paul even talks about putting pressure on them, maybe who's hardened their hearts. He says, you should not even socialize with them. You shouldn't even eat with them, affirm them, so they understand how serious their sin really is. And I think this passage just kind of tells us, kind of drives home a really serious point about grace. And that is that grace is never designed to be applied to sin. Can I just repeat that? That grace was never designed 
to be applied to sin. Grace is designed to be applied to remorse and repentance. Grace is shown when repentance is shown. It is not to be applied to someone's sin. Not to people who flaunt their sin, but to those who humbly admit their sin, those who repent and change and turn from their sin. Sin is never, ever to be embraced and affirmed in the name of grace. And that is the ultimate definition of cheap grace, which again, is not grace at all. Now, is that a difficult thing to do? You had better believe it. It really is. In fact, I always hate the thought of doing it because I'm not really a confronted person. But does it work? And is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does work. Ask Jim, who 35 years later has his wife, his children around him, his reputation restored, loves the Lord. Yeah, it works. It's painful. Nobody likes it. But it's what we do when we love each other and when we understand grace and truth together. James chapter 5 says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Cover a multitude of sins. Guys, we're not talking about somebody's immediate happiness. We're not talking about whether somebody's happy with you at the moment or something. We're not talking about our personal comfort. Those things might be important to us, but they're nothing in the big picture. What we're talking about is somebody's eternity. Eternity. And what we're talking about is learning how to truly love someone by showing grace and truth together. We're talking about respecting, protecting, and showing what real grace is. Because grace is to always flow to our sin only when we acknowledge it and when we repent of our sin. Never to be used to excuse our sin or defend our sin or dishonor the name and the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And anything that does that is not grace at all. It's not grace at all. So yeah, this today's message is a little more serious, a little more intense than last week. It's great to talk about grace. We got to balance that by looking at grace and truth together. And we got to be honest about it because if we don't, we're just fooling ourselves. And we're fooling the world. And to be honest with you, we're letting the world's down and we're deceiving. We're failing the world and we're failing God if we don't put those together in the right way. Next week, it's going to be a lighter message, you know? It's going to be all about extending grace and how we have to show grace to other people. But let's get it right today. Let's embrace the grace of God as seen in Jesus Christ. Let's humbly acknowledge our sin, that none of us are perfect. We're all failures. Whatever our sin may be, we all have our unique, our struggles. Let's repent of our sin. Let's turn from it, and let's experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the restoration that only Jesus can give by balancing grace and truth together. Now, if you want to have a conversation about grace, maybe the grace that you need to experience, maybe what you have experienced, Maybe how you need to share it with somebody else. I don't know what it might be. I'd love to have that conversation with you. I'd love to encourage you in this. I want grace to be a gift because it is, but I want you to see how it has to be balanced with the incredible truth of a God who made us and who, get, who, who owns us and who owns our world. I'd love to have the conversation with you. I'm going to be on one side. Tony will be on the other here. We'd love to talk to you about it in just a few moments during our time of response. But but right now, we're going to see grace in action. And that's the amazing grace of, of, of what Jesus has done for us. 
The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, grace that was freely given, totally undeserved when he went and laid his life down for us. And if you're a believer this morning, we invite you to share with us in our communion time. It's going to be a time that we celebrate. Grace should be celebrated always. And we celebrate that as we come together around the Lord's table. And we take just a few moments, we take a piece of bread and we take a cup of juice. And it's a reminder to us of the the love of God, the grace of God that was shown through Jesus Christ, specifically in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. If you're a believer, we invite you to come and share with us in that and our tradition as we walk forward and and simply uh, take the emblems and then return to our seat. If you're not comfortable doing that or you prefer someone to serve you where you are, you can raise your hand. One of our deacons will, will take care of that and just bring it to you. But we invite you to do that and to respond. And if you do want to talk about your next step on your journey with Christ, I'd love to have that conversation with you as well. Let's pray together as we go to our time of communion. Father, we just come today. Lord, we want our hearts to be broken. God, we need that because um, our defiance and our pride sometime and who we are and what we're doing and, and how we can be confronted is, is, is sometimes we resist that, Lord. But God, we know that along with your amazing grace comes amazing responsibility and, and your incredible and, and, and explicit truth. So Lord, will you speak to us through your word? God, will you confront us with truth? God, will you give us people in our lives that will love us enough to confront us? Will you help us love each other enough? God, to do so with humility and love and and gentleness, but God with an integrity that says that we will hold your truth above anything the world holds. That God, we will show grace, but we will do it with truth and with love. And God, thank you for being that kind of God that would provide for us so graciously, that would love us and give us Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.